earning a master's degree in theology is a good idea, especially if you're going to work in the church. But earning a PhD in the humanities is not a great idea. The market is flooded right now, and only about half of the graduates with PhDs in the humanities get teaching jobs. In fact, none of my friends that have PhDs in the humanities have teaching jobs. Zero. I'm the only one of my classmates and close friends. So we're going to have a conversation today with Dr. Jared Oliphant, who earned a master's degree at Westminster Theological Seminary, and then went on to earn a PhD recently in philosophy from Texas A&M University. We're going to hear his story of how he went from Westminster to Texas A&M to not being able to find a teaching job, which is pretty normal. And on this episode, we'll discuss some of the challenges there. Thank you so much for joining us for this important conversation. Dr. Jared Oliphant, thank you so much for joining me today on the Anthony Bradley Show. Anthony, it's awesome to be here, man. Thanks for the invite. So tell us a little bit about your journey from college into be- becoming a PhD student and how that worked for you. I mean, by the way, I want to say for the record, this is newly minted, ladies and gentlemen, newly minted Dr. Jared Oliphant, not just simply Jared, Dr. And so I want to I want to make sure that is stated for the record. So tell us, you went to college where and how did you, what did you do after that? And tell us how, how you got to become a PhD student. Yeah, thanks. I went to college at Gordon College. It's a small liberal arts, sort of broadly evangelical college near the Boston area. It's a little north of that. And I went in there. I didn't know what my major was going to be when I started. I really had no idea what my giftings were, if I had any in the first place, and very quickly found out that I had that philosophy was more or less like the subject that I was already thinking about. So I took a philosophy course my freshman year. It was um, actually by a professor named Grady Spires, who had taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, where my dad was teaching at the time. He just made it so exciting and vibrant. He was enthusiastic. He was sort of the opposite of what you might think a philosophy professor would be. So the combination of just being naturally inclined to asking like the big questions about life, those sorts of things, and and also in theology as well. I just thought, well, this is sort of this is just what I want to do. I want to think about these things. I can't believe this is a discipline. So I majored in philosophy. And at the time, I was also very much interested in theology. And so I wanted to pursue that, pursue a graduate degree. And the closest school on my radar at the time was the school that my dad was teaching at, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. We mentioned that before. And so really by freshman year, I decided, all right, I'm going to major in philosophy, go into theology. And that's what I did. So I'll, I'll try to shorten the story, obviously, but went to Westminster, got an MAR. Master of Arts in Religion, and uh, yeah, focused on like theology, philosophy, the intersection there. And by the time I had finished that degree, I was burned out really from academia. I had gone right from college into seminary, which I don't recommend in every case. It was like two months after I graduated, I started summer Greek, pretty intense. And so I decided to do like the regular job thing. So I did the regular job thing for three years. I was just in secondary market insurance um, and found out very quickly that is not where my passion lies at all. I was just a paper pusher at the entry level. And so, yeah, that ended about three years after I graduated from Westminster. And pretty quickly after that, a position opened up at Westminster in the admissions department, being director of admissions. So I applied for that. 
got that. That was really fun. Really, really enjoyed that. So I was in, you know, graduate level administration. And again, trying to cut this short, I learned in that job that I still had a passion for pursuing graduate work and and hopefully beyond that on some level. So I applied for the THM program at Westminster where I was working to try to sharpen my theological skills. You know, when you're doing admissions, you're traveling to all different colleges and conferences and that sort of thing. So I would find that I would have all these very intellectual theological discussions with people while I was on the road and I want to keep sharp. So I was in the THM program. I did all the coursework and Part of my coursework was actually a, it was a philosophy PhD level, doctoral level course at UNC Chapel Hill on skepticism. I just looked at colleges. I was living in Charlotte at the time. And so I was looking at colleges that are in my general location and seeing what they had to offer. And I had no idea that Chapel Hill is one of the top philosophy programs in America. It's just really good. I had no idea at the time. I was just like, oh, skepticism. That sounds interesting. So I did that. I took that course and the professors there encouraged me to pursue beyond just taking like a one-off course, pursue a PhD in philosophy. So I applied to programs that first year. I didn't get into any PhD programs. I got into a master's program. So I decided not to do that. I did another round the next year and got into A&M, their PhD program in philosophy just finished last year. So there's the the short, quick version of all that. That's sort of the bio. And by A&M, you mean Texas A&M? Texas A&M. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and so for those who don't know how the process works, how do you go from being an undergraduate to getting a an application ready to do a PhD in, in philosophy? Yeah. There are a lot of elements and really there's a sense in which like I should never have been accepted to a PhD program because I came from a a small liberal arts, broadly evangelical college. And while I have a lot of great things to say about that program, it's not like it's a notable program, all things considered, when you compare that program to big universities with a lot of money and a ton of philosophy profs there. So how did I, I'll, I'll say first, like how I, think I got into the program. And then second, the kinds of things that someone might expect uh, to bring to an application process so that they might be successful at a decent program. But part of the reason I was accepted, I think, is because I took that doctoral level course at Chapel Hill. And like I said, Chapel Hill is just one of the best philosophy programs in the country. It just has excellent professors there. And so I had a good recommendation from a great professor at a great school, and that helped. But like I said, on the first round that I applied to PhD programs, I didn't get into any programs. I think I applied to like seven, which isn't a big number. A lot of people apply to like 10, 15 programs and see where they end up. And uh, so in after I got rejected from all those programs, I decided to take, I was waitlisted at UVA actually and Texas A&M, but ended up not getting up on the waitlist. So I decided to take another doctoral level course at UVA where I had some success, at least in the application process. And so I ended up taking a, a PhD level course on Aristotle at UVA to try and up my chances for the next round. I was working remotely at the time, so I could do that sort of thing. 
And so I eventually got a recommendation from that professor at UVA too. So, and UVA has a a great program as well. It's not quite as good as as Chapel Hill in terms of like rankings, but in many ways it it has just great professors and, and is definitely a notable program. So those two things, I think, were really the only ways that I could get into any program, a recommendation from someone at Chapel Hill, a recommendation from someone at UVA. Generally, uh, an applicant is going to need to have some good recommendations from wherever you did philosophical work. It's probably not going to count if you did just theological work or work in another field. You have to have a good sample paper that demonstrates that you know what you're doing, that you can write philosophically, speak the language, jargon, have a paper that's structured well, et cetera. And so, and yeah, those are the major things is like sample paper recommendations. And you're generally applying to an individual or a couple individuals that you want to study under. It's not as if you just look at the school in general, like I really like uh, LSU. So I just kind of want to go to LSU and their football, whatever it is. In my case, I happened to be born in Texas, so it worked out really well. There was a lot of familiarity there, but that was all coincidental. You want to pick someone who is a specialist in your area of interest. And I would say your area of interest very particularly too. Like if you just say, hey, I'm really interested in something like epistemology, the study of knowledge. That's great, but it's not specific enough. Maybe you're interested in uh, formal epistemology. Maybe you're interested in social epistemology. At that level, it gets very, very specific. Um, And we can talk about that later. But those are some of the things that you want to have in mind if you're even looking at programs. So when you were applying to, to the program, were you applying thinking that if I focus on these topics in this area, this will get me a job later? Or was it just out of interest? Or let me ask you this. When you applied and you were accepted, did the school say, hey, you should study these things because this will track you later to get a job placement? Is that how that works? That's a great question. There, there are two questions, or there are two topics in that question. So let me take the, where were my goals question? And then we can talk about what was the state of philosophy at the time? And then, you know, maybe we can even talk about how it changed later. But yes, I mean, it, I was very stupid and naive when I applied to programs. Most people in who are in philosophy, or even it really in higher ed, I think are going to recognize what I'm about to say is very stupid and naive, but I just didn't know what I didn't know. And so, yeah, I thought, look, I am, I'm interested in philosophy. Uh, if I do a PhD, I will probably get a job because institutions need people to teach philosophy. I also had a theology degree. So I thought, hey, I could also teach at like a Christian college or maybe even a seminary. And for me in particular, coming from a reform background, I did know, uh, yeah, this is a whole other can of worms, but I did know that being a reformed thinker who was trained theologically at Westminster at the master's level and even the THM level, who also could do philosophy at the highest level because I would be going through the PhD. 
at a research one university, a big university, I knew I would come out kind of a unicorn. There aren't a ton of people who have those credentials. And I thought that it would have value in either Christian higher ed or secular higher ed. Turns out I was mistaken about that, that there isn't a a whole lot of value about that. But yeah, at the time, you know, there was some, what do you call it, training or some information about what to expect in terms of the job market. But it was mostly theoretical at that point because I had five years to go. And so, you know, it was a combination of, I didn't, I don't think I had all the information that I should, but also I don't know if I had ears to hear and eyes to see at that point, because I just didn't know how that practically worked itself out on the actual job market in terms of specifics. And those factors, I would say, you know, I started in 2017, those factors changed by the time I finished, which was last year. So that's the start of an answer to those things. Yeah. So, I mean, here, here you are, right? You have this, this great education, both from your, your undergrad and Westminster. And I mean, you've been trained deep in theology and, and, and the intersection of theology and philosophy, biblical studies, all that stuff, right? Systematic search history, everything, right? And now you're pursuing a philosophy degree at an R1. I mean, this isn't this isn't like some online college, right? This isn't this isn't some sort of random this is a regular research one university, right? This is what we might call like the big time. And you're and you're thinking, and rightly so. Rightly so. It's not that I'm a unicorn. I'm going to be like a rock star, right? I mean, I mean, the expectation is with the combination of my background from Westminster and Gordon, plus I have a philosophy degree from Texas A&M. I have lots of options. I can pivot, right? I can pivot in the Christian space if I need to, right? But I can also, because I have these secular university chops at... Texas A&M, at UVA, at UNC, then they won't be afraid of me either. They don't, they won't think I'm weird. They won't think I'm some kind of quack because I have, I have the credentials on their side. So I have lots of options, unlike other people who are probably only limited to one lane. I have multiple lanes. Is that, is that fair? That's so fair. Yeah. And I would, I would add that to this day, I see Christian academics, let's call it theologians, people in Christian academia, continually, like on Twitter, social media, highly, highly value and want to talk about and impress by philosophy as a discipline. That philosophy gets, for the most part, a ton of respect within theological circles. And so I would see seminary professors, seminary administrators, Christian college professors, you know, people from that world really interested in Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas, medieval thinkers and, and other figures. And again, like to this day on Twitter, it is just not uncommon to see discussions about the relationship between theology and philosophy. And so you think that because people care about that a lot, that they value it a lot. But I have not found that to be the case as that works out in terms of the jobs that are available out there. So tell us a little bit about sort of in like super layman terms, like mm-hmm. as if you were speaking to a middle school student. Okay? What did you study? Like, how would you describe your, your research project and the topics that you actually wrote about? Yeah, great question. Okay, so I, that was kind of a 
process as well, because I ended up, uh, no, no, I ended up, I started out wanting to do something in philosophy of religion because one of the, really the, the main professor at Texas A&M that I, who I wanted to study under, his name is Robert Garcia, great guy, excellent philosophy of religion prof. His other area of expertise is metaphysics. That's sort of the study of what the world is like, let's say. So existence of God issues come up there, free will, who are we as people, what are objects like and properties? How do we sort of structurally think about those sorts of things? That's what I thought I wanted to study. And then it occurred to me, you know, as I start thinking about philosophy of religion, and particularly the intersection of philosophy of religion and metaphysics, what the world is like, those sorts of things, I'm finding myself needing to go much, much deeper into metaphysics as a discipline. And so the thought process was, look, I need to know this subdiscipline within philosophy really well before I start applying it to theology and philosophy, religion, that sort of thing. And the other strategy there was, I want to know something in philosophy where I don't give away my theological credentials. I want to study a topic where I prove myself. I'm really not talking about religious issues here. I want to establish myself as a philosophy proper thinker before I get into those sorts of things. So again, there was sort of like a strategy where I thought that would be valued on the other side. But yeah, so long story short, I ended up doing most of my work in metaphysics and a little bit of ethics and a little bit of philosophy of language. And I, my, one of the main questions I asked in my dissertation was, what kind of input do we as people have in, let's say, categorizing the things that are out there in reality? And so what input do we have on categorizing a table? Is that just kind of a, we just, this found object, or do we as people sort of have a very strong role in saying, no, this is a table. It's also a hunk of wood, or is there, are there two things going on? So this is going to sound very silly. Uh, there are much better ways of describing the kinds of thing, but how you categorize it in terms of philosophical terms is I wanted to look at the discipline of social ontology. How do societies and individuals, like I said, contribute towards reality and what things are? Not in the sense that we make things out there, but we're putting things into categories. We're saying it has this property and not that property. And part of the reason I did that is because that's a it's a very up and coming field right now in philosophy, social ontology and social epistemology, those sorts of things. And we can talk about the trends in philosophy if we need to. I'm not a philosopher, but I have been to school a couple of times. It seems that that really does relate a lot to the philosophy of language and how we come to terms and how we use them in negotiating this, this the nature of being uh, in, in general. And yeah, I mean, that sounds really interesting. Actually, I was like, I, I kind of want to hear more about that because it really has, I mean, as, as you, as, especially now as we think about it, as I think about it in terms of of how we use language to tribalize social identity and group identity, things like that. It's it, it's important. This isn't just sort of like, oh yeah, this is interesting. No, no, this is mat that matters because as we'll talk about in a moment, people are losing jobs because of this, or rather, they're they're not able to even apply for jobs because of what you're talking about. Right? That's how important. That's how important this is. Now, you mentioned that there were some changes in philosophy. This is what I've heard. I've heard that there's been a shift or some a change in interest in the field of philosophy and the kinds of things that that schools are are hiring for, looking for. 
today versus maybe five years or even 10 years ago? What, what, are, what are some of the changes that you've seen in what philosophy departments are now looking for or hiring for? Yeah, good question again. I will start out saying I don't have decades of institutional knowledge in the field of philosophy. So some of it is just going to be me relying on people who keep stats on these sorts of things and and do have institutional knowledge within the field. I do know what's going on now because I look at that pretty regularly. But, you know, if you remember, so yeah, I, I applied, you know, at the end of 2016. So the way that it worked out, like, remember what the world was like in 2016, it was pretty different. So my, all my applications were in by the end of 2016. And I found out that I got accepted to Texas A&M in February of 2017. So Trump had been inaugurated for like a month at that point. And so you you remember all the cultural things that were going on during that. And so once that happened, and then if you fast forward, there's a lot of fast forwarding, but then you, you know, you fast forward three years later to COVID era and George Floyd and everything that was going on in 2020. And again, the the major cultural shift across many, many different dimensions. Cut to the current state of philosophy, and it is it's different in the sense that, like you mentioned, the jobs concentrate on different areas of study in philosophy. They they are seeking, they want people who focus on ethics, social philosophy, the intersection of like science. And uh, philosophy is a major one. I won't take the time to do this, but I, I pulled up just today. There's a you can track this, all right? So d- you don't even have to take my word for it. If you go on the site philjobs.org, I think it is, it'll list just about all of the jobs in philosophy that are out there right now. And so you can go to and it lists it by category. So you can take a look at like what are these jobs really wanting to concentrate on? And like I said, it's going to be ethics, race, social philosophy, bioethics is a major one. And so there's a sense in which departments now have to, well, yeah, so start over. Departments need funding to put job positions out there. They need money. Depart- philosophy departments get it from people who are their bosses, administrators. So philosophy departments have some say in who they hire, but a lot of times it's a mix of maybe their desires and what administrators are asking for. And a lot of administrators want to appear like they are doing social activism in a way. And they they exhibit that through the positions they hire for. And so you see the vast majority of jobs in philosophy going that direction. I didn't see one job where they wanted someone who studied metaphysics. I didn't see one job where they want someone who studies uh, epistemology. Those classic disciplines in philosophy, like I said, it's it's mostly all towards ethics. There's a couple like history philosophy positions, but I think one of them is like a Catholic institution where they're always going to want that certain type. So that's the landscape. I could say more, but I'll leave it there for now. And so I think, I think what you're speaking to in terms of the shift, right? So two things. One, the Trump years brought a laundry list of issues that people began to talk about, particularly socially and politically, that were at the center stage of of all of, of the discourse. And then secondly, and it'll be interesting to see how how historians reflect on this you know, 100 years from now, 
but the the George Floyd year, I mean, that 2020, the com- with the pandemic and and his death, his murder, I mean, that just was a a seismic shift in how we look at education and everything. In fact, it was it, it seemed to me that that institutions bent over backwards to sort of prove that they weren't racist. And so diversity and equity and inclusion, while it had existed, it became like the focus, right? And so now, now, because you have all these academics who are talking about systemic racism and and that language is now being being spoken into the ear of an administrator and administrator saying, listen, we have to prove that we are not an institution that supports systemic racism by hiring for diversity and equity and inclusion. And so now all of our jobs have to be really focused on on the intersection, I think, of two things. One, the sorts of issues that came up during the Trump years and the sort of issues that came up during George Floyd. Right. So you get a lot of emphasis on on social philosophy, probably political theory, things like that. Race. Right. Gender all those sorts of issues. And it seems to me, and tell me if if this is what you've seen, it seems to me that if you're not working in that space, you're not working. Like, sorry, you won't be working. I mean, is that fair? Or let me ask it this way. If you're not working directly in that field, you have to pledge allegiance to how you will draw your, your area of study into that work. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. And what's interesting for the field of philosophy is I don't know what the breakdown is in terms of field of study and number of PhDs going into which subfield. So I don't know how many metaphysician PhD students there are right now relative to uh, PhD students who are concentrating on ethics. But what you said is right. It's likely that, like me, if you focus on an area that doesn't directly deal with some of those cultural issues and activist issues, you will at least need to demonstrate in job interviews, which that's its own topic, you will need to demonstrate, number one, how you care about those issues. Number two, how you incorporate those cultural issues into your research. Number three, how you incorporate those cultural issues into your teaching, no matter what you're studying in philosophy. I mean, literally, like you could be studying ancient Greek philosophy. And you, you will get a question, most likely, that has something to do with, tell me how you go outside the Western canon of philosophy. Maybe that's what you're studying anyway. But tell me how you go outside that sort of thing and how you make students aware of either their own privilege or how you, you know, those, those sorts of questions are not kidding. Just those are those are questions that you at least put in your job interview prep as ones that are likely to come up if you're in the discipline. That goes for other disciplines too. In higher ed, you just have to be ready for those sorts of questions. I, you know, I knew that going into it, and so I can speak to those sorts of issues. Fortunately, the the areas that I concentrated on, like social ontology, some of the questions that come up under that field are like, what is race? How do we categorize people into these groups? Is there any sort of rhyme or reason? You know, the question, quote unquote, does race exist? Well, it's sort of, it's a weird question, but uh, it's neighboring 
field is in the philosophy of language, and that's called conceptual engineering. All right, so let me break this down. You, you take any concept, and concepts could range from something like evidence in epistemology, or a concept could be like race, or a concept could be like gender. And the question, there are a number of questions that are asked in conceptual engineering, but one of them is the concepts that are out there in play, broadly speaking, among the population, are those the best concepts that are applied? Or do we want to reconfigure these concepts in some way, depending on whatever goals we have? And so if our goals are, let's say, outcomes where in every position or every field imaginable, we want a sampling of the general population breakdown by demographic along racial lines, gender lines, et cetera, then we're going to want to change our concepts to fit that accordingly. So anyway, that those are some of the issues that are live when you're going into a job interview. And that's those things are, are again, a whole other separate can of worms. This isn't something that you were expecting to have to do when you entered into the your PhD program. Is that that's totally accurate. Yeah, my expectation was, hey, metaphysics is one of the most long-standing fields in philosophy and so it seems to me we're always going to need metaphysicians and like I said the, the it flows naturally into theology. So when I get out of here what I really want to do is teach philosophy particularly metaphysics out there and so there'll probably be a job somewhere there. Now, so, some of the things that I've seen on job postings is that you have to provide a sample syllabus for a course. And by the way, that sample syllabus has to also pledge allegiance to diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So you have to provide, I mean, you could actually teach a class on, I don't know, Augustine's metaphysics, but you have to somehow prove and demonstrate that in your syllabus, students will be reading inclusive authors, which is seems to me to be a euphemism for non-white males. That's just sort of what it what it seems to be. And so the pressure on the on the instructor is to manufacture a syllabus with readings that demonstrate this to sort of prove that you pledge allegiance to to diversity, equity and and, and inclusion. And I'm I'm wondering I'm wondering how does that change how one approaches the job market i mean does that does that increase your options does that narrow them i mean does that how, how did that how does this emphasis on on diversity and equity and, and inclusion as a requirement for application how do you think it changes the nature of, of job hunting that really is a good question because you know my first response is it changes the nature of job interviewing because you have all of those things that you just mentioned in mind as possible questions that a committee is going to ask you. In that way, in that sort of small way, you do have to pay homage to whatever those concerns are. But you also need to think about, and most, most people don't when they're getting into a PhD program, you also have to think about what it's going to take for you to get tenure even if you do go through the interview process successfully, what is your teaching going to be like if you land this job? What is your research going to concentrate on if you land this job? So tenure, how would you explain 
tenure. I'm trying to say like, I'm probably not great at explaining it because I come from like a different context and it, it varies depending on the uh, requirements for it vary depending on an institution, but basically you have six years to get tenure and you have to demonstrate all kinds of things. I don't know. So yeah, it's, it's going to be different from your context and from institution to institution. Yeah. I mean, I, w- I would, I would say that the tenure is, is basically a, a, a rite of passage into a permanent job placement. It takes about six years at most schools. You have to demonstrate service at the institution, teaching excellence at some institutions, uh, and also research and, and, and publication. And usually the publications are, uh, you know, peer-reviewed sorts of high-ranking publications. Like a blog post at the Gospel Coalition does not count at all. Right. right. And so, and so it, it needs to be something of substance. And then there's a review committee, as you know, and I know it can get really political in that, in that sense. But once you get tenure, it's sort of a, a way of saying that you are now free. Uh, you sort of paid your dues. You're kind of free now to, to really ask deep questions and research, whatever you'd like to research without, you know, fear of, of reprisal in terms of your job being, at risk for asking for asking really curious, really really curious questions. I mean, that's sort of a positive spin on what tenure is, and and it, it seems to me now that even, and and I'll say for the record, I'm not against diversity, equity, or inclusion. I don't think anybody is against diversity or against inclusion. I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's right. But but the idea that that this external program is now driving the the research interests of professors who have studied something that's in many in some cases either not not connected or directed at all toward that or maybe even tangential that that now because of the, the focus on institutions proving that they're not racist it now determines the research program in, in some respect. If you want to get tenure at some schools, my guess is that a lot of schools, you're gonna to have to prove that you have been an inclusive instructor and that you and that your research has been inclusive. And if it's not, you're not gonna get tenure. It seems to me that's probably where this is heading. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. I have I don't have specific cases um, that I can point to to say, oh, this person didn't get tenure because you know this person didn't do XYZ. But there's no question that just the political climate of higher ed has all kinds of pressures for you to do the same sorts of things that you were doing to get the job as you need to do to get tenure as well. Yeah. And so I'm I'm curious to know what what was your own what's what's your experience been like just sort of interviewing with with this in mind? I mean, have you have you had to actually answer these questions? Have there been situations where maybe you, you may have been passed over, not because you were a Christian, right? Not because you went to Westminster, but because of this sort of diversity and, and inclusion issue. Have you, what, what's, what's the experience been like for you? Yeah. Good question again. And that's right. I mean, I, the orthodoxy and heresy lines right now are not religious, they're ethical in higher ed. So you can be, you know, a Christian as long as you affirm, again, X, Y, and Z. So, yeah, I'll talk about my experience without getting into a lot of the specifics. About a year before I was set to graduate from the PhD program, that's when they tell you to start going on the job market. 
And so I, it, it's a very long process. It's a very stressful process, complicated process. You're in the dark. My advisors helped me as much as they could. So I did like mock interviews and that sort of thing. But, you know, I will say in the PhD program, I was successful in doing the things that I needed to do to get looks. I spoke at a number of conferences and presented original papers and I had a publication to my name while in grad school. And so at a, at a really good philosophy journal. So I, and those were all like a long time coming and very intentional. And I knew I had to tick those boxes to even get looks if I was going to go on the job market. So by the time I did go on the job market, um, I had a decent CV, all things considered, even though Texas A&M is an R1 institution and is up there in terms of quality of the program, it's not like an NYU or a Harvard or like a Rutgers or USC or something like that. Those are incredible programs. And So that automatically puts you at a disadvantage. You're not going to get the looks as other grad students might in like top 10, top 25 programs even. But I did get some interviews. And yeah, I'd say my experience was they asked, you know, all those schools asked the questions that you and I have been talking about so far, that that's just baked into the interview process these days. And I can think of there was an R2 institution I did an interview for. There's a small liberal arts school that was sort of broad broadly Christian in some sense, another R2 institution. And I also found out that I I lost the job to, I mean, this was stated to me directly. I lost the job, even though I was a promising candidate, to a diversity hire. Someone just mentioned that that was the case. (laughs) So again, I don't know the specifics on that. Maybe that was justified. Maybe it was part of some of the pressures that we're talking about. I'm not sure. But I would describe the state of the job market right now as often seeming like it's non-meritorious. Like I did everything that I could possibly do. I'm not sure why things aren't falling a certain way. I should say I've had tons of interest in in being an adjunct professor. So, I mean, even currently, I'm an adjunct at four separate institutions with like two others coming up on the list. And that's great. But it just it shows two things. One, there is some interest, but two, institutions can't really pay all that much. Uh, They don't have full-time positions opened up because they're just not getting the funding for that, especially in philosophy, um, as opposed to anything in STEM. So again, yeah, this is sort of a scattered answer, but, you know, I will say psychologically being on the job market was one of the hardest things that I ever did because of the push and pull. You get your hopes up because you have an interview. It takes a very long time. You don't hear anything for weeks. Then you get like a campus visit. So they fly you out to the campus and you meet with a bunch of faculty members and admins and you get to know everybody and everyone's generally nice. You have to do a teaching demonstration and that's sort of its own pressure as well. It just It pushes and pulls you in all kinds of directions. It's one of the most stressful things that you can do. So that's a little bit about my experience. Yeah. And so where, where would you say your career is, is headed now? I mean, what, what, what sort of options are, are before you? I mean, schools are continuing. So, so there are two things happening. Some schools are getting rid of philosophy departments. Yeah. Right. So there's there's sort of less jobs available on the one hand. But uh, secondly, every year there's new PhD students that are graduating and hitting the job market. So the pool that you're competing with for jobs is is increasing 
by some X number like every single year. And so you're all sort of in the same state of, of affairs where you have to compete, not just with the people that you graduated with, but the ones that you graduated, that graduated five years ago, who were sort of in the, in the sort of, you know, adjunct vortex that everyone's trying to get out of the adjunct vortex. Right. And so right. that's your competition as well. And so people have been in there for a really, really long time. So what do you, what do you think your, your options are moving forward? Yeah, there's so many ways to answer that. Let me talk about my specifics and also the difference in answering that question from a Christian institution perspective and then just mainstream academia, because those are going to look pretty different. But, you know, my specifics, I need to find a job that provides for a large-ish family. I have multiple kids and a wife. And so I can't do, I mean, I could, but you you can't reasonably provide for and logistically go through what typically happens with people like me, which is you get, like you said, an adjunct position where you're just teaching a few classes and you're making next to nothing for like a year. And then who knows after that? The other category is visiting assistant professor. That's usually like a nine month contract. And then you, you often don't get it renewed. So you have to go somewhere else. Meaning maybe you were hired somewhere in Oklahoma and then right as you get hired, you have to start looking for jobs again in that next VAP position, visiting an assistant professor position. And then maybe the next year you're going to go to Washington state. So you're in the Pacific Northwest now and it's pretty expensive. And then you're applying for the next thing. So that cycle can be really difficult for anybody, but with someone with a family, it's next to impossible. I wrote a piece on my Substack about how difficult it is for PhDs with families to actually, number one, go through the program, but also get a decent job. My template as an example for that was I was on the job market. I was looking at positions. There was a temporary VAP position at, I think it was Mississippi State, and the salary was 35K. And There's not a lot of people with families who can do that sort of thing. And that's the same salary that I had in 2005 when I mentioned I was in like the insurance world. So the insurance world in 2005 was paying entry-level people the same, that they're paying qualified, good, scholarly PhD philosophy students to just work for them and teach for them for one year, not even a year, nine months. In the summer, you're out on your own. You're not getting a paycheck. So that's a little bit on mainstream academia. For all of those reasons, I'll still keep a lookout, but I have kind of written off mainstream academia. It's just not friendly to somebody like me, and it doesn't value the kinds of things that I have done. That's just the reality of it. For a little while, I was kind of bitter about that and confused, and now it's just I just accept that that's reality. So that's mainstream academia. For Christian institutions, what I have found is that Many Christian institutions say they're looking for a philosopher, but are just looking for a theologian who sort of dabbles in philosophy. And I understand, actually, why that's the case. There is there is theology and Christian students, their hearts and minds to protect. And philosophy is the kind of thing that can easily go down roads that challenge proper, good, orthodox Christian beliefs. And so I do think that administrators and faculty at Christian institution, Christian institutions are a little bit too protective 
against people who have trained in philosophy. There's some proper checks that people can do. But also you have such a lack of people who have been trained in philosophy proper at Christian institutions that many times it's the blind leading the blind. You don't have someone who's been trained in philosophy who can look at the person who now is interested in another position in philosophy. So number one, there's rarely more than one philosophy position at a Christian institution. Number two, even if there is, you don't you typically have someone who's been trained in philosophy who can take a look at applicants and say, oh, this person does really good philosophical work and is also theologically orthodox. So this person checks out. That's okay. You don't have the former. And so you have a lot of non-philosophers guessing at what takes a good philosopher, what it takes to be a good philosopher, what kinds of things that you should be looking for. And so, I mean, yeah, the, the state of higher ed right now when it comes to philosophy, both in mainstream academia and in Christian institutions, is just really, really dire for all those sometimes unrelated reasons. There's the political reason. There is the funding reason. There are the Christian idiosyncrasies. So I wish I had better news on that front, but I just don't. It seems to me that some Christian institutions, they want professors who can talk about philosophy, but, but right. aren't actually philosophers of themselves, right? And they can talk around it, but they don't do the work and they ac actually haven't done the work and aren't doing the work. There's this weird, and, and this might be the topic of another another podcast. Maybe we, maybe we can get your dad on as well, because there there is this weird tension between philosophy and theology, and a lot of evangelical schools have some maybe PTSD about philosophy. They're really nervous. They're really nervous about letting too much philosophy get get on their campus, and I I don't think. I don't think those those fears are entirely unwarranted, but I but but I also think as they sort of hedge against it, they're kind of throwing the baby up with the bathwater and they're leaving both their institutions and their students at a, at a disadvantage. I can't say for the record that, that the King's College is not, is not one of those places for the record. There are lots of schools that, that aren't. But but I think that this this fear, this fear about, oh, my goodness, you can't let like philosophy proper on campus because it'll ruin students' minds, I'm thinking, well, actually, it might open them up. They actually might be better biblical theologians and, and, and better theologians, and, and they might understand the text and the tradition even better because they have some new categories for, for thinking. So let me, let me ask you this. If there's a, a seminary student, right, who's sort of thinking, you know what, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to graduate from this seminary, and I'm going to go do a PhD in philosophy, and then I'm going to go teach and change hearts and minds, what advice would you give this student on this side of your experience? What would you, if you were to sort of speak on a campus at a seminary about, here's what you need to know if you want to do a PhD in philosophy and, and actually get a job. Uh, here, here are some things that you need to know. Here's some things that I wish I would have known. What, what, what kinds of things would you, would you tell them? Yeah. Yeah. I've thought about that a lot. It's a good question. Let me assume that this person wants a job at the end of this whole process. And then maybe think about like what kinds of jobs, number one, are available. And then might this person actually want? So I always phrase it in terms of what are the odds of you getting a decent job? And I'd say for this seminary student, your odds are going to be decreased or increased depending on the kinds of choices that you make 
it while you look at programs. And so your odds of getting a job will be greatly decreased if you're not at like a top 10, maybe top 15, top 20 institution. And there are there are rankings out there that everyone takes with a grain of salt, but are sort of generally indicative of the quality of the program. And when I say quality of the program, I mean the number of philosophers who are in that department. So just at what size is it? What kinds of publishing works have they been doing? Do they have a bunch of books out and journal articles and that sort of thing? And also the the range of topics that this department can handle. So does this department have a bunch of philosophers who can supervise dissertations that are in the field of metaphysics? Can they supervise dissertations in epistemology and what kind of epistemology, ethics, social philosophy, political, all those sorts of things. And typically the the top 10, top 20 departments can handle that sort of thing. That's why they're, they're ranked so highly. But if you get Number one, if you get accepted into a program, and that's really difficult, we've already talked about that. But if you get accepted into a program that's lower than that, your odds of getting a decent job that pays decently and has some sort of promise of providing you long-term, decades-long employment is really lowered. So what do I say to this seminary student? I would say if you are going into it, your family is going to, if you have a family, it's going to make things much more difficult. In terms of the support system, it makes it easier. But in terms of providing, it's just going to make it much more difficult because you just have more financial demands on you. That's just the way that it goes. But um, if you have, seminary student, some sort of skill or employment experience in a field other than the humanities, philosophy, something like that. If you are trained to do something, let's say you're a double major in college, like let's say you in, you majored in engineering as well, make sure you have a backup like that if things go south for your aspirational teaching career. It is likely that you won't have a flourishing teaching career. It, it's likely that that just will not happen. And I will say, not because you might be you know, one of the smartest that you have ever, maybe you're king, you're king smarty. No one that you, even in your experience is smarter than you. I, I can think of one, two, at least two grad students that I personally knew at an institution who were just, I mean, exponentially smarter than I am. And they, one, actually dropped out of the program, sort of involuntarily just didn't make it through the program and another one hasn't really published or done any conferences just sort of can't get that ball rolling and it's not because they're this person is not smart way smarter than i am but it, it takes it takes much more than that to actually get a job and be successful and do all the administrative logistical things that you have to do in the program. I didn't know that you had to be your own entrepreneur and your own business going into the program. You have to think of yourself as your own company. There are things that you have to get up every day and do that are non-philosophy related that prepare you for that job market, like applying to different conferences that Oftentimes, your department isn't presenting you with a list of conferences that you need to speak to or presenting you with a list of like journal article ideas and, and research 
areas. That's, that is all for you to find out. You have got to be a one-man band in that sense and completely independent. So yeah, I mean, I tell that student that and just be prepared that if you're going to do this sort of thing, I would say it's mandatory that you have a very, very solid backup career and vocation, or maybe you're independently wealthy. You're getting your funding from relatives or something like that, and you can handle whatever expenses come your way. That's the other, I guess, magic bullet, because almost all this is about finances too. It seems to me that Christians are, well, I'll I'll say it this way. Protestants are at a real disadvantage because the Catholic institutions are deeply appreciative of philosophy. They have, you know, Lots of jobs available. Their schools really do a good job at various tiers, right? From Notre Dame all the way down to, you know, St. Mary's College or whatever, right? They really do value philosophy. And Protestants don't have the same institutional pipelines that Catholics do. And so if you're someone like yourself, you're at a real disadvantage. I mean, if you were Catholic, you would have had so many more options and probably would have a job to be completely honest, because they have a system, right? They have a higher education system that Protestants just don't have. And even if you keep kind of drilling it down, if you're Presbyterian, right, it's like worse. I mean, whatever denomination you're in, those those options are even even more narrowed. And so just higher ed, sort of Christian higher education puts you at a disadvantage if you want a job in, in the humanities, particularly in something like philosophy. I can tell you that of all all of my friends that I went through grad school all the way through the PhD program, I am the only one of my friends with a teaching job. Like I am the only one of my friends that I went to Covenant with, that I went to Westminster with, and some of them went to way more prestigious programs than I did. I am the only one with a teaching job, right? And so these aspirations, I think people need to do some research on beforehand to see what the state of higher ed actually is before you drag yourself and your family down the road and get very disappointed at, at the end. And that can turn into bitterness and frustration and, and all sorts of things like that. I don't want anybody to lose their faith because they, you know, they, they didn't get a, a good teaching job there. Uh, well, Jerry Oliphant, thank you so much for being the show. Listen, listen, I'm going to tell you this. If there's a college president listening to this podcast and you need a philosopher, Dr. Jared Oliphant, for sure, someone that you should look look into. How can people find out more information about you? How do they how do they find your CV and and things like that? Yeah, well, thanks, Anthony. I appreciate that. I probably the easiest is just jaredolephant.com. I have just a little Google site up there. And so my email address is up there and you can see a little bit. I haven't actually I haven't updated it from the adjunct stuff that I've been doing, but it's it's relatively updated and you can get a hold of me there. So okay. uh, yeah, thank you, man. Great, great. Fantastic. Well, I, I wish I wish you all the best. The state of higher education right now is 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 a mess. There is this emphasis on pledging allegiance to to being an an activist academic rather than an academic proper. I don't know where that's going. It seems to me there's a bit of a backlash. The University of North Carolina Chapel Hill right now has just just released some sort of anti maybe pushing back against uh, diversity and, and inclusion. Requirement. So there, there's beginning to be a slight correction, but of the job applications that I've seen, the job postings that, that I've seen, we're years away from, from this abating. And so I want to encourage anyone who's thinking about, you know, these sorts of things in the, in the future 
that you have, you're going to have to take these things into consideration because like Dr. Oliphant said, it is not just your merits. It's not just your intelligence. It's not just your research program. Uh, higher education right now is about something else. And if you're not about that something else, you may find yourself not working or working at 7-Eleven or something like that. So again, folks, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Anthony Bradley Show. And we'll see you next time. I would also like to thank my Patreon supporters for their generous support of this project. If it were not for your generosity and support, this project would not be possible. You all are the most important part of this experience. Thanks to you all for joining us today on this episode of the Anthony Bradley Show. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment on the various platforms where the podcast is heard. And I'll look forward to engaging you again here at the King's College in New York City on the Anthony Bradley Show. Thank you.